verses 4 through 14, as we begin this, um, this time in the Word of God, I want to, uh, as you're, you're turning there, I want, do want to mention it is Mother's Day, and we're not trying to ignore the mothers, but uh, we believe here at Grace Fellowship that the, one of the greatest things we can do for mothers is to teach the Word of God, not just to our mothers, but to their husbands, and not just to husbands, but to the children, and, and, and to the whole church. And so we are honoring our mothers today. I hope you are honoring your mother and your wife today. Um, and so uh, I don't want to take anything away from that. And I also want to mention that we understand that many of you are here with a lot of pain on this day. One, you, you've lost your mother. Um, you, you wish you could pick up a phone and call and, and say Happy Mother's Day one more time. Um, and that's a painful thing. It's also painful for many women who have lost children, and we recognize that pain. We don't want to, in the joy of today, to forget that, that there are those who are suffering today. And uh, though you have a smile on, and, and, and you're right to do that, and you're not stealing the show from everybody else who's enjoying their day, uh, we want to know you to know we know about you, and we love you, and we're praying for you, and Christ knows your pain, and he is ministering to you. And then there's the mother of those in infertility, those who are unable to bear children so far, um, and we want to let you know also that we recognize that and that we love you and that you are equally important to the kingdom of God, whether you have a physical child or not. He loves you. And he has provided a way for you to be included into his great work. And so um, our richest blessings and thanksgivings for you and your lives. Hebrews 4, uh, of Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at the marvelous introduction to the sermon, or homily as it might better be called, that is the letter of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews in our Bibles. Our pastor who's preaching this sermon has been contrasting and comparing the person of Jesus Christ to the prophets of the Old Covenant. He's preaching to these Hellenistic Jews who are beginning to think about turning away from their faith in Christ and going back into uh, Judaistic practices. Or maybe better said, they're wanting to add to the work of Jesus by going back into the rituals that were so, uh, so much a part of their former lives as Jews. The pastor is, is, is exhorting them to continue in the faith, steadfast, be immovable. This is really his charge. And the book of Hebrews, as I said last week, is not classically known as what we might know as, a, as, a, um, as an expository sermon. It is a homily, and homilies were used as a device to bring about belief to argue for the, for the fact that you should believe and you should stand firm and you should continue to progress in your faith and in your belief. It's an exhortation, as it's called later in the, in the letter itself. It's, it's called an exhortation. I think we can uh, capture the exhortation in a sentence. The essence of this sermon can be found in this one sentence. I've said it now. This is the third week in a row. You're going to hear it over and over and over again. I want you to remember it. When you think Hebrews, I want you to think this statement. God's final revelation of himself in his son is supreme to all past revelation. And this revelation is an anchor for our soul during the day of persecution that causes our faith to persevere. 
God's final revelation of himself in his son is supreme to all of the previous revelation. And this revelation is truly an anchor for our souls in the day of persecution that makes our faith persevere. It keeps us. We often think of perseverance as if it's something we're doing when it's better to think there's something that God is doing in us. He is causing us to persevere through this anchor, through this revelation, through His Son. Last week I said, you could shorten this sentence down and you could say, and it was the title of our sermon, Jesus is the final and better word. Well, today I want to nuance that even more and say, the title of this sermon is, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. That's the title today. The angels are exalted, created beings. They held important roles in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They are seen to rule over territories and nations in verses like Daniel 4, verses 10 through 18. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. This speaking of the angels. Daniel says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. These are the angels. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let this, his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. So we see in that statement by Daniel that these watchers, these holy ones, are given dominion, territory over the earth. And they move about that territory which they rule Placing leaders and displacing leaders. God truly is the one doing it, but he does it through the angels. The angels are exalted, heavenly creations. They are no uh, mere uh, figment of imagination, nor are they little fat babies with wings floating about on clouds. Angels are powerful beings. And also, in Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, at least uh, we see here in the Song of Moses, 
Listen to these words. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders, the territories of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God. This is Moses' song, praising God as the great one who delivered them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. And as he praises, he says, God has appointed territories, borders, and those borders are set by the sons of God, the angels. This is the common way to refer to angels. The angels also play part in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. According to Acts 7.53, Stephen says, You who received the law was as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So on Mount Sinai, we know the mediator of the covenant was Moses, but also the mediator bringing the word of God to Moses beyond the Ten Commandments, which God wrote with his very finger. We're left from this sermon in Acts to understand that the angels were ministering this covenant to Moses. They were intermediaries between God and man. They were speaking for God. They were servants with a mouthpiece for the Most High. They were exalted heavenly beings. I, I just shudder to think what the angels think when they see the popular conception of them. You do realize they see that, right? All our hokey little drawings and cartoonish type figures of these powerful beings. Thank God He is gracious and restrains these ministers. I don't think they probably take too kindly to being made out to be fat babies floating around with harps. Do you? These are exalted beings. They are great beings. And the writer of our Hebrews the pastor that's preaching this sermon doesn't want to detract from that. Listen, there are some, and, and you know, there's disagreement about this, so I just want to be honest with you. There are some who believe the reason this is here is because these Jews were worshiping the angels. But I don't, I don't buy that because there's nothing negative about the angels here. It seems to me if his goal was to say the angels are not worthy of, of any respect, he would tear them down. But as you're going to see in our quotes, he doesn't tear them down at all. He holds them up as lofty, exalted, angelic, powerful servants of the Most High God. But what he does is then say, let me tell you, do you see how powerful those are? Do you see how awestruck you are in the presence of the ones who control the rulers of the earth? I tell you, there's one greater than those angels. It's not that he's saying the angels shouldn't be respected. It's that he's saying, if you respect angels, let me tell you about Jesus. So I don't, I don't think he's saying these people were worshiping angels, though that, that is something that was going on in the ancient world and it goes on in our day today. As a matter of fact... Um, in my understanding, in my study, and my conversations, both the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church worship angels today. They exalt them to the level of Jesus Christ in many occasions, many writings, and many teachings. So it's not that angelic worship wasn't happening then or now. But I don't think that's the direct focus here. I think what he's saying here is, you have a right and you have a, you have a reason to think these are exalted beings. 
he goes further. I mean, we can go further in the Old Testament. We see not only these things, but we see this, this is also held that they are in the very throne room of God. They are before the face of the holy God, these angels. We see that in passages like Job when the sons of God came before him to report what they had seen and done on the earth. And we see it in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is caught up in a vision of the throne room of heaven, it is the angels who are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the angels who are worshiping there. It's the angels who protected the Israelites when they went in to conquer the land of Canaan. You haven't forgotten, I know, Gideon, whose eyes were open to see the many thousands who had gathered to protect him and the small army which he possessed to defend the people of God. And we, we could never forget that his, his flaming ones even prevented false prophets while they were on their way, right? I mean, here the, the false prophet Balaam is headed off with his donkey and he's mad because the donkey won't go through an angel. Who's the idiot in this story, right? The donkey's pretty smart. He saw him and said, whoa. So the angels are exalted. They are high. They are lifted up. We, we, we not only see it here, but the exalted language which surrounds the angel, Michael, who's seen as an archangel, a prototype of, a, of one who is above a general, so to speak, over all of the armies, over at least a third of the armies. Gabriel, the great messenger who carried messages between God and Elizabeth and Mary and, and Zechariah and Joseph and even Lucifer. Even Lucifer is said to be an exalted angel in the Old Covenant Scriptures before his fall. All the evidence points to the greatness of the sons of God. But our pastor wants us and his original audience to understand that there is one who is greater and is not worthy to be compared to these sons of God. He is the Son of God. Singular. They are not even close to Him in splendor. They're not even close to Him in glory. Jesus is better than the angels. That's what He's saying. Now I want us to look at these verses. Verse 4 through 14. I want us to go through it systematically. And I've tried to group things under four headings that I think help us understand these quotes. I understand it's difficult. He's quoting, 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 quoting. And, it, and you, your hand may spin like mine does. So I've spent a lot of time tearing the quotes apart, looking at them trying to understand them from their context and in the context he's using them. Before I get started, I want to say this. These quotes come not, and just like all the quotes in Hebrews, they do not come from the Hebrew Scriptures. These quotes come from the, from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. They differ from the, the, text, the, the, the Hebrew text. They differ slightly. They're interpretive in some places. It's not shouldn't shock you that he uses this text though, right? Because who is he writing to? Greek speaking Hebrews. It's quite possible that many in the congregation he's speaking to don't know how to read nor understand Hebrew that well. They may know it in part, but not in full. These these are uh, the re some of the reasons. But there's also some reasons I think he grabs. And the New Testament, by the way, quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew more than it quotes the Hebrew I mean in every book not just in Hebrews there's a reason for that because in those that text in the Septuagint we have the closest translation and interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures 
In other words, we're not dependent on scholars today to tell us what the Old Testament said in the quotes that Peter and James and John and the writer of Hebrews. Why is that important? Because the Hebrew was not pointed. It had no vowels. And so many times, scholars will play monkey business with the Hebrew, liberal scholars, to try to change what that word says. But thank God we have Greek quotes that are not easily tampered with, and they're throughout the New Testament. So it preserves for us the Word of God. It's God's magnificent way of keeping His Word pure. And our pastor quotes it here constantly. Look at verse 4. Now verse 4 really linguistically fits with the first three verses, but I've broken it out here because it, it also thematically focuses with the verses that follow it, 5 through 14. Look at what it says. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Do you notice what he's doing here? I said earlier, he's not tearing down the angels. You see that in that very way he quoted, right? He said to these angels, you are ministers of my, of, you, he makes the, his angels winds and ministers of a flame of fire, but... Of the Son, he says, he's, he's exalting the Son, not devaluing the angels. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens at the, are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed like a garment. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And they not, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? First of all, we see in this passage, the very first point is, Jesus has received the greatest name of honor. Jesus has received the greatest name of honor. This is verse 4. This is the name of enthronement. Verse 4. If you look, it says that he has received or inherited a name that is more excellent than the angels. Look back at verse 3 now. This is the connection here is up to verse 3. The, second, the, the, the final part, part D. After, beginning at after, after making purification for sins, the Son, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has been given or inherited is more excellent than theirs. The action that made Him or gave Him the name which He has inherited is the redemptive action that He partook Put, took on in the place of his people. 
That's what has given him this exalted title. The point here is not that he is not the eternal son of God. That's not the point. He is the eternal son of God. Rather, what the preacher is trying to say, and what I want you to walk away with is, he's the eternal son, but he is even greater, do even greater worship. He is even higher in exaltation because of the work of redemption. He's worthy of our praise whether he ever stepped forth from heaven and saved us through his work, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But oh, listen to me. You worship him not just because of who he is, but you also worship him because of what he has done. It's not simply a disconnected Jesus somewhere up, our son, somewhere up in the far yonder that we've never known, has never communicated to us. No, God brought the eternal son into the flesh that he might deliver us from our sin. And now he's received a name that is higher than any name because he is exalted to enthronement. There is a tight connection here between the last part of verse 3 and verse 4. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Again, you don't have to turn to these. Just listen. This is the way Paul said it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be tightly held to or grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, to this point, what we've seen is not the exaltation, but the humiliation. Paul brings it out. Jesus stepped down into the flesh. We can't understand the step he made. The leap that he made from where he was from all eternity as the Son, the one and only, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, in the radiant glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God shining forth from the throne room, and yet he stepped down. It, it almost doesn't do it justice, does it? How far he had to go. And Paul shows us that by saying he not only stepped down, but he came in the form of a human. He not only came as a human, he came as a servant. He not only came as a servant, but he died a slave's death on the cross. This is the humiliation. But look what the very next verse in Philippians 2 says. Therefore, based on the fact that he was willingly subjected to humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his humiliation leads to his exaltation. Our passage, what he received was a name that is so much superior to the angels. Because he's superior to the angels. Because he willingly subjected himself to become our sacrifice. That's what the author is saying. Now he's asking a question. It's hidden. You don't hear it, but I want to say it for you. Why would you ever turn away from this Jesus? You want to worship angels? Why? I can feel him saying, that's ludicrous. They didn't humiliate themselves on your behalf. 
They did not carry your cross. They did not die your death. They have not received the exalted name. Why would you worship them? Oh, you have a right to respect them, and you very well should. But worship, it's not befitting an angel. Ephesians 1, 16-21, Paul agrees again with our preacher when he writes this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, God, the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you notice that? It's the glorious inheritance of Jesus in the saints, which He wants us to know. Then he goes on. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is Paul's way of talking about the angels. Paul agrees with our pastor. Listen, he has received a name, inherited a name, which is so much superior to the angels because his work on your behalf is superior to any work that has ever been done. Why are you worshiping anything except Jesus? Why would you step away from Jesus and return to Judaism if you, if, if you, if you respect the angels, respect him. He's greater than the angels. He puts, he goes on, Paul does to say, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. We need to understand that Christ is now praised not just as the creator, as we saw in verse 2, not just as the sustainer, as we see in the beginning of verse 3, but he is praised as the redeemer at the end of verse 3. He is praised because he has redeemed lost men. This is the highest title that will ever be given. This title, son. This is the highest title anyone will ever receive. And this, this title, son, is not just eternal. That's what we know from the character and being that we've been looking at from verses 1 through 3. But listen, in verse 4, he transitions to say in verses 4 and 5, that he is receiving the Davidic sonship. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and he quotes Psalm 2, 7. Psalm 2, he's going to quote in our passage, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, and Psalm 89 is written through it, is paraphrased through this thing. It's not quoted. But three enthronement psalms are quoted. Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110. And Psalm 89, a fourth enthronement psalm. Enthronement psalm simply means it's a song that was sung when the king took his throne. When the king was coronated and brought before the people and sat on a throne, they sang these songs. And they were sons of David. So what he received, what people say, what was the title? Some people say it's Lord. Some people say it's Jesus. I just want to tell you, I believe that it is the Davidic sonship that is being said to, that he inherited here. He has inherited the role of his father David. He has inherited the throne of his father David. And now he is highly exalted above the angels because of that. 
And we see it in these enthronement psalms. He quotes Psalm 2. And then he quotes Second Samuel 7.14, which is a statement in its context about the founding of the Davidic line. God made a promise, and this promise was, I will be to him, talking about David's descendants, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This was true of David, this was true of Solomon, this was true of all of Solomon's sons after him to some degree. And now our pastor is telling us in this passage, Jesus is the ultimate son of David. He is enthroned on the ultimate throne of David. There is no greater one than him. That's that's what he's communicating. When will these passages be fulfilled according to our preacher? When will they happen, we might ask? Well, our preacher says they have, this has happened. It's not a future tense thing. It's a past tense thing. Notice what he does here. All of this is past tense. After making purification for sins, he sat down. He sat down. He's already done that. Where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs when is he going to get the name that is above the angel's name in the past he got it when did he get it when he sat down on the throne when did he sit down on the throne at his ascension after he ascended after what his death a burial and resurrection this is a past tense event it's already happened so therefore psalm 2 7 is already completed it's done God has said to him, when he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, God looked at him, the Father looked at him and said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is not him saying, you just came into existence today, my son. This is him saying, you now receive the greatest title of all time. You are the Davidic king of all kings. Lord of all lords. And he follows that up, and our our preacher does, so that you have no way around it except to accept this as a fact, finished, complete, at the resurrection, ascension, and sitting down enthronement of Jesus in heaven. Why? Because he takes 2 Samuel 7, 14, which they thought would be fulfilled on the earth in Jerusalem, and he says, this is finished. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. That's already done. It's done when Jesus took his place at the ascension. This is the fulfillment of Luke 1, 31 through 33. The the angel said to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. When did it happen? At his ascension and seating at the right hand of the father it happened. The angels already worship him as the son of David. They're not waiting for a future event. They've already done it. They are doing it even now as we preach this sermon. Secondly. In this passage, we see not only that Jesus has received a superior name, but Jesus is the one the angels worship. 
Jesus is the one the angels worship. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says. This is God saying, let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32, 43. This again is interesting. Because he's not quoting from the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, he's quoting from the Greek text, we get a completely different ending to the song of, of Moses. This ending is not in the Hebrew that we have in the Masoretic text. It is older than the Masoretic text. It's in the Septuagint, which I believe was in the original. This verse was saved for us in perpetuity by God through the Septuagint. The Hebrew translation or copies lost this verse, and it's only because we have the Septuagint that this verse has been preserved. The one where God says to the angels, worship him. All right? Angels worship him unceasingly now. They do that right now. Because he has returned to heaven as the redeemer of his people. Verse 6 is telling us this. They worship him because he is the firstborn. Now, the word is translated firstborn. It, it is meant to teach us preeminence and rank. Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Same word here. And it's, it's meant to teach us rank, not coming into existence. This was a common way to use the word. Some have debate, debated when, again, this action is going to happen or has happened. Some believe it happened at his birth. They believe that the angels worshipped him at his birth. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not recorded for us in Scripture that the angels worship him at his birth. You say, oh yeah, they filled the sky and they sang. Yes, but they did not worship Jesus. They announced his birth. It's not worship to him at that point. It's worship to his father and it's a command to them to go and find him, the shepherds, but it's not worship of him. So, so I don't believe we have any reason, nowhere in Scripture are we said to, that the angels worship Jesus because he was born a baby. Some would say that it's going to happen at his second coming. And although I agree he is going to be worshipped at his second coming, I don't believe that's what he's saying here. What is he saying? It seems obvious to me, again, that what he's referencing is something that happened at the enthronement at the right hand of God. The word translated world in our text, in our English text, is not the word cosmos. That's the word that's usually translated in English world. But our writer has used something different. He's used the word oikomene, which is the word he chose to use in Hebrews 2.5. Look at Hebrews 2.5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. What world was he talking about? He's talking about the eternal world. He's talking about the heavenly world. It's not to them that he has subjected this world that's coming. And that, that's the same word. The same Greek word is used there. So our writer, when he uses this word, must be talking about not this physical world, but the world that is coming. The world of heaven where God dwells. So it's obvious to me, again, that he's describing what happened when Christ came back to heaven victorious over sin and death from his death, burial, resurrection, and now ascension to the right hand of the Father. When that happened, God, when God brought him into the heavenly world as this conquering one and sat him down at the right hand, God said, worship 
Him. He's talking to the angels of the throne room and the angels of heaven. Worship Him. And truly, they have continued to worship until this very day. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of His robe, filled the temple. And again, the angels will worship Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so this praise is happening, John tells us, to who? To Jesus. John took Isaiah 6 and says, that's Jesus. Jesus was the one Isaiah saw. In Revelation 5, it's the angels who are seated around the throne that are crying out to Him in worship as the one worthy of their worship because God has commanded that they worship. So He has received a name that is superior to the angels through redemption and exaltation. And because He's exalted right now, He has fulfilled the Davidic sonship which was promised in the Old Covenant. He sits now on the throne that His Father had promised Him. And He rules as the Son of God, the Son of David. Today, right now, and the angels are worshiping him in the presence of God. Third point from this passage, Jesus is the divine king. Jesus is the divine king. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a couplet from Psalm 104, verse 4. It's a couplet, it's a repeating. He makes his angels winds, what does that mean? He makes them ministers of flames of fire. It's the answer to the first statement. The second answer is the first. Again, Psalm 45 comes into view here, verses 6 and 7, and this is an enthronement psalm. Now let's understand it. First of all, he quotes Psalm 45 here to teach the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8a. Your throne, O God. Now that, O God, is not directed towards the Father. It's directed towards the one who's on the throne in Psalm 45. It's directed toward the King. Jesus is the absolute deity. It is His throne because He is God. Secondly, it's His absolute reign which proves that He is the King. Forever and ever. The second part of of, uh, 8a. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Not only is he an absolute deity and he is, an ab- he is absolutely reigning, but he is absolutely righteous in all that he does. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. How has he shown this most distinctly? He's shown it at the cross. He upheld the work of God in righteousness and then he showed his hatred of sin by dying a sinner's death. Truly, these two things come together. His absolute deity is shown by this quote, his reigning, his righteousness, and finally his joy, his absolute joy. So we see at the end of Psalm 45, in, what would, in verse 9 in our text, Psalm 45, 7, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness or joy beyond your companions. His joy is complete. His joy is everlasting. His joy is insurmountable and uncomparable to anything that has ever been experienced by an angel or you or myself. His joy is an exalted joy. And Hebrews will take this up again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The reason Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus endured the cross was because he knew there was joy waiting which was incomparable to anything, anyone, anywhere will ever experience. The joy of being called the Redeemer, the Exalted One, the King of Kings. This joy is beyond comparison. So we see Jesus has the name that is above every name, the Son. We see that Jesus is also... Um, in his enthronement, receiving the sonship of David, this Davidic kingdom. And we see that Jesus is this divine king. He is the one who will rule and reign. And finally, we see that Jesus is the eternal king over all of creation. Hebrews 1, 10 through 13. First, we see he is the Lord of creation in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The creation is the work of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King over all creation. Secondly, in this this quote, we see that he is the eternal and unchanging one. If you look at verses 11 and 12, it's, it's unbelievable. Look at this. What we think to be the most permanent thing, the universe, is seen to be like a t-shirt which you take off and throw in a dirty clothes bin. How easily do you do that at the end of the day? You come in from work hot, sweaty, tired, ready to take a shower. You peel your shirt off and discard it over here and go about your business. It's simple. I tell you this, the day comes when Jesus will shed this world like we shed a t-shirt. He is eternal, and He is unchanging, but the created realm is not. It is ever-changing, and it is nothing but temporal. Even in eternity, it doesn't equal the Lord. The Lord is greater than the creation. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed But you are the same, and your years will have no end. We hear an echo here of Hebrews 13, 7-8, when it says, The Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our pastor is saying, listen, you need to worship Jesus because He is exalted by His name above all things. He is the Son, and He is the kingly Son of the line of David, having received the throne of His Father. And he's being worshipped now as the king over all creation. He is a conquering king. He's not just an eternal king that's unchanging, but he's a conquering king. Look at verse 13. Psalm 110.1 Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. This one will give you the, the willies, right? It'll give you the chill bumps that you like. So the picture here is that God has placed Jesus on the throne. And there is coming a day when all of His enemies will come before His throne, Him seated, them before Him, and they will bow down and they will kiss His holy feet. And this is what He will do. Listen closely. 
you pit yourself against Jesus Christ, I tell you, he will win. He will be victorious. And you will kiss his holy feet. And rather than being received in worship, he will pick up his foot and put it on your neck. You will become his footstool. That's from the greatest of his enemies, Satan himself, to the most lowly of his enemies. They will be subjected to his sovereign reign. He's reigning right now, whether you want to believe it or not, from the throne of his father. And he is the Davidic son who has inherited the kingdom because he is the king of all creation. And there comes a day at the coronation of this grand scheme which God has laid out before the foundation of the world that all of his enemies will stream to him and he will, they will bow before him. He will not stretch forth the scepter accepting them. They will kiss his feet and he will put his foot on their neck and say, I never knew you. Depart from me we don't serve some chump who was meek and mild and lowly in the wimpy way we depict him we serve the king of kings and the lord of lords who rules and reigns now and forevermore. listen the capstone of this sermon you know, they were looking at these verses is this. Verse 14. Unlike Jesus, who is the one to be served and worshipped, the angels were created to serve us. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In all of the throne room scenes of the Bible, in all of them. We see lots of images, things that exist there, but there's something missing in there. It dawned on me this week. There's only one seat. It's the throne. God Almighty sits there and His Son sits with Him at His right hand. The angels in Scripture never Sit down. Because sitting was a, a word for completion and ruling. It was a way of saying, I'm in charge. Everyone else serves me. What our writer has so craftily done, what our preacher has so craftily and masterfully done, is said, look, you want to know whether he's worthy of your worship? I tell you, the angels stand. The ones you fear, respect, have awe for, they stand in his presence and they bounce like court gestures at his word to do what he says for them to do on your behalf. He sits. He reigns. He rules. Worship him. If you've ever thought of worshiping something else, if you today are guilty of worshiping someone or something else, or just saying, I'm going to sit this one out and be neutral, I'm not going to worship, may I tell you, you've made a bad decision. And it's not too late. You still breathe air into your lungs, and your brain is still functioning, and your heart is still beating. You can call on the one who will save you. You can call on the one who redeemed you. You can call on the one who will reign forever and ever and ever in his kingdom with his holy angels serving him and his people gathered about him in worship. You can submit to him today.
You don't have to wait till he puts his foot on your neck. You don't have to wait. You can receive him today. So that when you stream before him in eternity, he will say, come to me, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. I tell you, our God is so glorious and his son is so great that they are the only ones due worship in all of creation, even above the angels. Let's pray. Father.